turns on.
He left her uh, left alone after his death. Sherry continued her, uh, her eccentric life. Two years later, she purchased a small farmhouse on the side of Rattlesnake Mountain and began buying up adjoining acreage, feeling her second love, the forest just south of Elf Road in Chester, New Hampshire. Sherry would live in a small farmhouse devoid of many modern amenities for 17 years. But the farmhouse would not do for hosting guests as she set her sights on building a castle in the middle of the woods. During her, the turbulent construction period, she reportedly nagged many of the contractors about minor details until they quit. And rumors began to circulate about her. It was said she would be chauffeured around town in a cream-colored packard with nothing but a fur coat. And accompanied, of course, by her pet monkey. It was also said that the madame and her name was there for literal reasons. A continuous cycle of beautiful women coming and going at the house had the local believing she ran a brothel. Okay, I'm not that. It's a little unnerving. Seriously, I'm told that. I will get there. <laughs> First, I just want to get the sound off. There. Ghost is three tonight. Okay. In spite of her obsessive focus on detail and her offbeat ways, the castle in the woods was eventually finished. Upon its completion, one of the visitors said that it was a theatrical French chateau of New Hampshire uh, stone, wreathed in Roman arches and crowned with a chalet roof. An imposing stone an imposing stone staircase. Grandmaster for a falling stage set had stone flower boxes with red and white flowers earning the name the Primrose Path. The main stairs cut into the rock ledge, leading to a massive red front door. Adding to the atmosphere, there was an, uh, even supposed to be a tree growing through the center of the house and out of the roof. Mary's mantra was purportedly only the and for years, she threw wildly lavish parties at her castle, hosting an eclectic band of friends from the city. But the fun ended only a few years after it began, as Sherry's money simply dried up. It was not long before she was a ward of the state, leaving her palace in the woods to succumb to nature. She was placed in a nursing home in Brattleboro, Vermont, in 1950, and died in 1965 at the age of 84. For the ghost. For the ghost. Okay, the ghost now has a Hopefully. <laughs> With no one to take care of the property, the castle soon became the victim of vandalism until it caught fire in 1962, just three years before Sherry herself passed. The fire ripped away the walls and the roof of the castle, but left the stone foundation in place, which still stands there today. On the day she died, she sold the property to Anne Stokes. Some say it was an act to preserve her connection to the land, that would extend beyond the grave. Today, the Society for Protection of Hampshire Forest owns the 500-acre Madame Sherry Forest, and it is now open to the public. Castle ruins, stone archways, fireplace, and chimney, 
columns and stone staircase rising from the forest floor are all said to be haunted by the spirit of Madame Sherry. Legend says that the lady herself, dressed to the nine, has been spotted atop the grand staircase, which some refer to as the stairway to heaven, and that if you listen closely, you'll hear faint strains of laughter and music coming from the room. It's easy to imagine her making the grand entrance on that elegant set of stairs, especially when the scent of perfume wafts down the staircase and then a brief flicker disappearing into the mist of blankets before floor. Many people who have climbed the stairs recall feelings, the feelings of dread, and there have been reports of seeing a misty human figure around the grounds of the castle. Electronic voice phenomenon and spirit boxes have also resulted in stunning results, uh, as, such as the words <coughs> Madame Sherry, have been captured as evidence on the ground of the Madame's one-time it seems that Sherry and her longest guests may not be ready to abandon that luxurious playground in those New Hampshire woods. <laughs> As I said, I want to go hiking here in the fall. It looks gorgeous. One day. Road trip. Added to the list. Another, another road trip. Uh, but yeah, I again apologize for the Apparently, it's not happening to get off the Olympics for this show. It turned itself back on. The Wheel twice. of Fortune. Well, yeah, there's that. It turned itself back on twice. And, no, it definitely was not the cast. Oh. Well, maybe yeah. the girls who cat enjoyed watching the TV. Oh, yeah. It could have been. I don't know. But TV is volume is off now, so even if it turns itself back on, at least it'll just yeah. hopefully be quiet. <laughs> and as much as I appreciate Drew Carey and The Price is Right. It doesn't fit the theme. It right. does not fit the theme. It does not be, need to be playing in the background. And it's doing it again. Okay. This is weird. I have no idea what's going on here. Here, you play with it. Anyways, ah, uh, yeah, exactly. See, told you. Weird. All right. So, uh, next up, we are staying in New Hampshire for this next one. <laughs> and uh, like the like the saying, you know, there is the older places, the more ghosts seems like it. I mean, Makes sense, you know. More history, more opportunity. You know, more people come through, more opportunity to uh, have a little bit of a spirited afterlife around it. And uh, the Amos J. Blake House is nearly 200 years old, so it's got a few years on it, and it's located in Fitzwilliam, New Hampshire. The house was originally a combined store and home built back in 1837. Nearly 30 years after its construction. Amos J. Blake purchased the property for his home and law office. And in 1966, it was given over to the care of the Fitzwilliam Historical Society. Today it is a museum, so visitors are welcome, but ghost hunters should be respectful and coordinate with the museum staff. While the spooky stories surrounding the museum are not a secret, the Historical Society doesn't want to seem to encourage them to be the main attraction. 
Uh, they would, of course, like the historical society, like to focus on the history. That makes sense. But if you are polite enough and ask about the spirits of the museum, some of the staff members might be willing to chat with you. One day, the museum curator was completing a little maintenance on the museum floor when she realized that she wasn't quite alone. When she looked up, there was a small cat approaching her, his tail twitching about in a friendly and inviting manner. The curator, being fond of felines, reached for her camera to get a picture of her furry visitor. However, before she could grab a hold of the camera, the cat disappeared before her very eyes. Local lore about ghosts in Sicilian historical society go well beyond phantom felines. Ghost cat aside, there are believed to be at least 11 other spirits at the historic building, with at least one in every room. Given the level of care exhibited in maintaining the structure and its historic authenticity, there's no surprise that so many spirits might feel compelled to hang around in the familiar digs. Every room in the perfectly preserved house is filled with antiques and artifacts from the days when Amos Blake walked the land. Now, Amos Blake was a prominent man in Fitzwilliam in the mid-1800s. Besides being a lawyer, he was also a community leader in the state legislature. Uh, he purchased the house in 1855 and used one of the front rooms as his law office. And when he died in 1925, his son Leroy transferred his insurance business to the home and assumed residence. While Amos was a pillar of the community, his son Leroy was better known as a ladies' man and, well, as well as a porter, which are two personality traits that I... They normally don't go together. No, but more power to you, I guess. When he winds up passing away in the 1960s, each room was jam-packed. While there were pathways to move about, there was scarcely room to breathe amongst the massive tiles. The piles were sifted through, though, and some number of artifacts were maintained. Amongst the artifacts that were saved and restored for display is his original office desk and furniture. His desk sits in front of the window, outfitted with tools of the trade, and old telephones sat beside an old inkwell, and items that actually once belonged to the family. On the second floor, which was once divided into apartments, each room is a treasure filled with antiques from the era. One room is filled with old toys, cribs with creepy like dolls. We all know how much we love dolls. <laughs> Along with a glass showcase filled with delicate old playthings. In the wee hours when no one is around to play with the antique toys, the caretakers have come back to find the toys out of place as if the hands of some unseen children have taken them up from the display place and left them on the floor halfway across the room as children who do not clean up after themselves are inclined to do. Other items in the house seem to move out of their own volition as well. A catnip toy, <laughs> rather for the ghost cat, is frequently found in various places throughout the house, as if the spirited feline had been playing with it. A shadow person has also been photographed in this part of the museum as well. In the part of the museum that has been restored to the appearance of a country store, a chain, uh, a chain that limits access to guests will sometimes swing of its own volition, as if a long-past shopkeeper is still moving about and going about his business. Another room is dedicated to a well-respected local doctor. Dr. George Emerson practiced medicine in the town for many years during the earlier part of the last century. 
After he died in the late 1950s, his son donated his equipment to the museum, including an old wheelchair, uh, an old wheelchair, medical instruments, and medicine bottles, including several labeled snake oil and liver pills. An odd doll was propped up on a shelf. Supposedly, this figure was kept by the doctor to help teach new mothers about caring for their children. <laughs> then there is a historically accurate bedroom display with an old-fashioned stenciling on the wall and an antique rope bed centered in the room. Another room on the top floor was a costume room with beautiful dresses and outfits from every era of the late 1800s and early 1900s. Then there is a room dedicated to the Fitzwilliam Band with various instruments and uniforms displayed around the room. Next door to that room is the military room with artifacts and uniforms from various wars, including the Revolutionary War, uh, the Battle of Gettysburg, and World Wars I and II. And on display is a cape that was worn by a general to George Washington's commemorative service in 1800, one of the oldest artifacts of the building. One of the most interesting rooms is the old schoolhouse room, however. Over the course of the past decades, the museum has collected an assortment of, uh, assortment of old school vests and antiques, including a photo of George Washington, an old wall clock, and a teacher's desk. On one tour of the room, a guide had heard a, no heard a noise behind them as they addressed the group. When they turned around to face the chalkboard, they found several chalk lines on the board that were not previously there. Mediums who have visited the building have described an entire cadre of spirits lingering about, particularly in the attic. All manner of men, women, and children are believed to be lingering about the home. There is a grumpy older gentleman who keeps to himself, a woman that loves to dance, and of course the children who play with whatever they can get their hands on. Spirit box sessions held in the attic have received some interesting and some might consider chilling responses. When asked who their favorite tour guide was, a spirited response came back saying, someone like you. They're my favorite. Another response came through unprovoked as investigators were exploring an office space. While studying a piece of equipment and trying to figure out how it worked, a would-be helpful voice piped up and said, come look at that. Fortunately, it's that helpful, playful, and friendly nature that seems to epitomize the paranormal activity of the Fitzwilliam Historical Society, a museum that is as haunted as it is historical. Wait a second. Too far away for me to read. <laughs> oh, Patrick uh, shared a picture of uh, the, the historical society. Pretty place. And another ghost cat. Of course, you need to go visit the ghost cats. I'm good at finding those stories. Everybody loves ghost cats. Real cats, ghost cats, or well, I guess ghost cats are real, but yes. spirited cats. Spirited cats, lively cats like ours. Cats, cats, cats. And thank you, Donnie. Good to see you, and appreciate the welcome back to, uh, to our, our our chilly, chilly Virginia. But we do have a nice fire in the fireplace, and uh, our blankets and the warm kitty cats that are willing to cuddle with us. 
when they're not counting each other. <laughs> no questions, just entertainment. <laughs> no worries. Also, cats are awesome whether they're living or not. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. So when I was researching um, the different stories, I vaguely recalled this story from my childhood. And I could not remember where it was. Because we grew up in, in the town I went to high school in. We had a couple of bridge, of course, they're all over um, Vermont. And it's kind of a staple of Vermont. Um, but I couldn't remember where this home was located. And then I found the story. Um, so this was known as Emily's Bridge in Stowe, Vermont, which is, of course, a big sea town. Um, and uh, it's no ordinary bridge, of course. Granted, it's covered, and it's got its charm and its mystery about it, as do the other hundreds of covered bridges in the New England area. Uh, but this one has more mystery than charm about it. Stories swirling around this particular bridge could be the basis for a good horror movie or a TV series. For all appearances, the bridge looks normal. It's just another bridge on the brook. Uh, that was built in the 19th century. But the first clue that something isn't typical about this bridge is right in the name, who's Emily. Because the official name of the bridge is the Goldberg Covered Bridge. So what did Emily do to get the bridge named after her? At first glance, it's rustic, it's unremarkable, it's a covered bridge, like a myriad of others that are found nearby. It doesn't look haunted. It was built in 1844. The simplistic one-lane 50-foot span is the oldest covered bridge in the country. Excuse me, country. Its builder was John M. Smith, a nearby Moscow, Moscow, Vermont, an obscure hamlet within the town of Stoke. It's bragged that it would last forever. Perhaps he was right. But this bridge is infamous for its resident ghosts rather than the historical and structural accomplishments. So about Ellen Millie, why does she haunt the bridge? And, of course, that's going to remain a mystery because nobody knows who she is. Most commonly told story is that Emily was a young stone woman in the 1800s who fell in love with a man. And, of course, for whatever reasons unknown to her, her parents disapproved. Her family forbid her to marry. In retaliation, the two love-struck teenagers decided to elope on the Goldbrook Bridge at midnight. Emily made it to the bridge and waited, and the appointed hour came and went. The man never showed up. She was devastated. She couldn't go back home. Everybody would find out what happened. And she would be humiliated as well as heartbroken. Seeing no other way out, she hanged herself on the rafter of the bridge. Now in spirit form, she lurks inside the bridge, still waiting for her long-departed lover, getting angrier and more hopeless by the year. Emily's bridge seems to be a sore subject for many Stowe's residents. There's an ordinance in place now not to allow people to visit the site at night. While Stowe likes the attention gained with the tourism industry, Emily's Bridge draws the sort of attention many residents do not want. But the two are hopelessly tangled up together. As it turns out, Vermont's most famous ghost story is not only a well-spun yarn, but the real story of Emily's Bridge is far better than the conventional one. A true story of Emily's Bridge doesn't go back to the 1800s, but rather, much more recently, 1970s. A woman by the name of Nancy Wolfstead claimed that she was the one who created the story of Emily to scare the local youth. 
<clears throat> there was a swimming hole somewhere near Stowe and Morrisville. She remembers making up the story of the bridge to amuse the kids. At the time, there was a huge surge in the occult and the paranormal and popular culture, especially with the films like The Exorcist that had recently been used. She was also one who came up with the name Emily. Curiously enough, with a little digging, I uncovered no information about any Emily that had been found prior to 1970. What Nancy probably didn't expect, however, was that her story grew in popularity. It soon spread far beyond the limits of Stowe, and it's quite possible that the story of Emily's bridge became fixated in the paranormal concrete when a local tour company opened up, the, uh, opened up and the bridge and Emily became part of the presentation. Oops. Somebody didn't do adequate research. As I said, I grew up in the 90s, late 80s and in the early 90s in Vermont. I had heard about this story. So 20 years, and it was already in the middle of Vermont. I would equate it to our Richmond vampire story. Probably. Which we very much present as... This is lore. This is local lore which is not necessarily based in... Yeah, there may be a few tidbits here and there, but yeah. most of it... Individual not, tidbits of the story, but we do not subscribe to the theory that there truly was a vampire running around Richmond in So while there are no records of anyone named Emily dying on the Goldberg Bridge, a tragedy did take place there. It happened around 1920 when a little girl fell off the bridge and died when her skull was dashed off the boulders below. There are reports from people who have tea with an elderly woman who lived near the bridge, and she remembers when the accident on the gold bridge happened. She was about 10 years old at the time. To make matters more interesting, Goldbrook Bridge may not even be the real Emily's bridge. There used to be another covered bridge just down the road near the Nicholas Farm near Route 100 until it burned down in 1932, and it was replaced by the current concrete span that is still in use today. There were brief records of a death happening on the old covered bridge, but the details were lost with time. Could this have been the real Emily Bridge? If there is a ghost, it's possibly that after that bridge burned down, the ghost sought refuge upstream at the Goldbrook Bridge, which is now those last remaining covered bridge. Or maybe the legend is just simply translated from the other bridge. It seems the story is just that, a legendary bridge which has burned itself into the memory of many and isn't the lo location it is most identified with. But there is more to this story. Reports kept claiming that Emily's bridge was haunted and didn't always manifest themselves into local folklore until 1948 many years after the aforementioned suicide of Emily. The bridge became known as the Haunted Bridge, but the story of Emily didn't exist yet. So if the bridge had a reputation, and perhaps visitors were getting frightened by something entirely different. So, what is that? So the theory about Emily. So, after Emily hanged herself for being stood up, other things, possibly. Number one, on the day of her marriage, she was trampled to death by runaway horses. That's pretty bad. Pretty rough. Yep. Number two, she was on her way to the wedding. Her horse bolted, threw her out of the wagon, 
poor Alfred's back, and she fell to her death on the rocks below the bridge. Number three, Emily was unattractive, middle-aged, and pregnant. Her boyfriend jumped off the bridge and died. Later, Emily had twins who soon died, heartbroken. Emily threw herself off the bridge and died. That's like the opposite of Romeo and Juliet. Number four, her boyfriend fell in love with another girl and never showed up at the bridge, humiliating her. That's possible. Number five, Emily began dating her lover and she became pregnant. Excited to break the news, she told him to meet her at the bridge. He didn't take the way she accepted and was furious. Emily was humiliated, brokenhearted, and venomously told him, that if he left her, she would tell everyone in town. And her threat, he acted hastily and murdered her on the bridge. He silenced her forever. Some stories say he left town. Other stories say his guilty conscience got the better of him and he committed to it. It warned you this is good for a horror movie or TV series. You're all piece of work. Anyway, so... If any of these would have been the case, there had to have been an eyewitness who saw these events unfold on the bridge. Or how would these details be known, right? There's no witnesses, no reports were ever made of a murder on the bridge. And perhaps there are even more stories than that, that no one can actually find any real history to back them up. And, of course, we all know if it's on the Internet, it's true, right? Of course, everything on the Internet is true. Well, and this was enough to if Emily did in fact commit suicide on the bridge, how would she have done so? The rafters of the bridge are a good height from the wooden plank floor. She would have had to make some effort to climb out on one, and if she uh, hadn't done that, that meant she would have broke the rock with her, meaning this would have been premeditated suicide. No rope was ever found dangling from the bridge. So, kind of lose that. Now, when we rule all this out, how can we have claims that the paranormal activity where no murder takes place and suicide takes place? Why? Remember, the legend of Edwily was proven to be nothing more than a hoax. So what accounts for this? Well, let's start with what are the accounts. All of the accounts have been reported are various and range from benign to terrifying. Most common occurrence are photos taken by tourists that fail to not come in. Or perhaps the photographer will notice the pictures are uh, including puzzling, blurry blemishes that weren't present when they took the photo. Some even have photos that are said to include the ghostly image of a girl standing in front of the bridge who was not there at the time of the photo. Others have seen inexplicable things like flashes of white light and no traceable stores. Others have heard a disembodied voice coming from nowhere, uttering words that can't be understood. But in the rare occasion a voice can be understood, it is said to sound like a woman crying for help. Some occurrences are more aggressive, perhaps the away on the windless day. Temperatures in the bridge are known to be inexplicably warmer or colder than the temperatures outside. One famous tale includes a man witnessing his windshield fog up on its own and a handprint appearing on the windshield. 
but no one was around to make the print. Then encounters started to get more violent. In the old days, horses that crossed the bridge would unaccountably bolt in fear as phantom bloody gashes would appear on their bodies. And they were uh, looking like somebody just raked nails across them. When the horse traffic was replaced with automobiles, the paint jobs would be ruined by the same invisible claws. And even people have reported getting scratched. One group of teenagers even go as far as to claim they saw Emily. As they parked their car on the bridge, they said a formidable woman appeared in front of their car and began to approach them. Terrified, they scrambled to lock their doors. She stood outside, jingling the handle for a few minutes, trying to get in. With no luck, should her form eventually dissipated into the night air. Other weird things have said to have happened, of course, around the bridge. Goldbrook is a beautifully rocky brook that runs underneath and has some sort of bizarre property attached to it. Uh, some claim that on certain days, fancy music, which is said to be uh, resembling wind chimes or a soft turning of a heart, can be heard coming from underneath the bridge. But when curious investigators go to find the source, they cannot. Now, what's going on here? What can we make of all this? Could it really be Emily or perhaps another ghost who died on the bridge a long time ago? Perhaps Emily's bridge is a geographical area with strange supernatural properties where unexplainable occurrences are said to manifest. Maybe even portals to other worlds, worlds are said to reside. Or maybe it's just a product of an overactive imagination inspired by curiosity and an infamous urban legend. As I said, there's no concrete answer and there was no for sure. The story of Emily's bridge is um, and the countless other historical facts vary from paranormal claims. People are so large in number and so conflicting that it's almost impossible to take apart the pieces and find the truth story. So, we'll leave it up to you. Is Emily an immortal tale that was thrown together at a spur of the moment by somebody trying to entertain children? Or do we have a ghost here that we just don't know about and has assumed that this name, Emily, that has been placed upon it? Johnny points out that folklore comes to one of Yes. I think this is a prime example. Prime example. Uh, <clears throat> speaking of that, and since I did mention the Richmond Vampire, I do want to give a little shout out before I forget. So I think we've mentioned this book before, Return of the Richmond Vampire by John Rickstraw. Uh, so he uh, went ahead, this uh, Return of the Richmond Vampire, it is a uh, work of fiction, uh, a fantasy type work of fiction that is set in a real-world setting, namely being Richmond, amongst a couple other places that are thrown in as well, but mostly Richmond. And a uh, fantastic book. It was what I took for my recreational reading um, on our trip. And a uh, very, very good book. And I don't just say that because um, he read our names and haunts of Richmond in the book, which is kind of cool. I was a little skeptical, but it's cool. We're in a book. So yeah, there's that, and uh, the story. If you like, uh, if you like uh, fiction, fantasy fiction, vampire stories, stuff like that, excellent book. I do recommend picking it up. Again, that's Return of the Rich Vampire by John Rickstraw. 
I will figure this out. Nico wants cuddles. Vincent wants cuddles. Vincent wants cuddles. Ah. Oh, and <laughs> chimes. Yeah, I, another snafu, forgot to silence my phone, and you are hearing our ring camera. Somebody's walking by the stairs in the Although tickets from the local state 
Chelsea's office. So we're going to go back up to the north and a little more about a lot of these, about as far as you can go. We're going up to Maine. Because Maine. Because Maine. And it's here that we have Battery Field Military Reserve. And it rests in a marsh at the southeastern side of Peaks Island on the ocean edge of Casco Bay in Portland, Maine. Completed in 1942, Battery Steel was built to replace aging structures throughout the coastal defenses in the United States. On Peaks Island, as part of the defenses, there's total 58 military structures known as the Pikes Island Military Reservation. Among these structures were gun emplacements, range-finding bunkers, fire control posts, barracks, watchtowers, and searchlight bases. Today, out of the original 58 structures that were on the island, many do still exist, but nowhere close to those original numbers. Outside of the battery steel gun emplacement, the fire control towers stand, still stand, and the range-finding bunkers stare out of the ocean. And various other buildings of differing uses dot, differing uses dot the 14-acre site. Some of the structures have been incorporated into private residences, and some sit on private land not available to the public. Others are part of Kite Peaks Island Land Preserve, which is open to anyone for exploration. With hiking trails and markers pointing out military sites of historical significance, the previous military compound offers well-groomed trails to help explore and hike. The structure of Battery Seal is dark and tomb-like, so make sure you bring a flashlight. The structures are built into berms with a 300-foot cement corridor connecting the previous gun emplacement. Concrete walls 18 inches thick shut out all the light. Rooms that bump out, along the, bump out of the long, darkened hallway have graffiti adorning their surfaces. One room down a set of stairs is flooded with water four to five feet deep. Battery Steel has gained a National Registry of Historic Places status in recent years. It is an important part of Peaks Island in military history. Although the guns are gone from the structures, the buildings still stand as if waiting for an attack. In recent history, the monolithic structure of battery steel was used to host the alternative art installment of sacred and profane. Lasting over a week, performance art, environmental art exhibits, and many other modern sculpture and abstract art adorned the dark spaces. This event no longer exists, but the artwork still remains on the walls of some of the rooms. Old, dark corridors are said to be haunted by former soldiers. Many of the island's 858 permanent inhabitants have stories of ghostly encounters inside Battery Steel and the surrounding marshland. Visitors have reported their cell phones freezing and batteries suddenly draining upon stepping inside the structure. Phone screens go white, red, or black with no prior indication of issues. Many also talk of piercing female screams coming from inside the tunnels and visions of soldiers in uniform telling them to get out. Others have heard child laughing and talking in the underground rooms. Given the literal and metaphorical weight of the structure and its history, any unexpected encounter within its confines is enough to set anyone's hair on end. I shall inquire, I shall also check. Uh. <laughs> yeah, the Warrens did invest a lot of time in their, their cases. The Warrens are 
absolute, absolute legend. Yeah, they are. Uh, um, did, uh, did so much for the, um, the paranormal community. And, uh, yeah, the name of the ghost, Red Eyes, that I definitely... Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah. No, thank you. And uh, only in your states.com, Patrick shared the link to the remnants of Battery Steel. All right, so we're going to pop down to Massachusetts and the Orleans Waterfront Inn. In the 1640s, Nicholas and Constance Snow were one of seven families who, after being deeded land by Governor Bamford, left Plymouth to settle the Nassau region, which is modern-day Cape Cod. It later became the towns of Wellfleet, Eastern Orleans, uh, and Orleans, Massachusetts. Generations later, the Snow family had become the integral thread of the fabric of Orleans life. In 1797, Isaac Snow was an instrumental, was instrumental in the incorporation and renaming of the town of Orleans. In the 1870s, Captain Aaron Snow constructed a wharf and made from timbers of a vessel shipwrecked on the notoriously dangerous uh, Nassau Shoals. The wharf was home to Aaron Schooner, the Nettie and Rogers, which sailed the New England coast, bringing to Orleans her cargo of oil, grain, and fuel for sale for the town's people. From this building, his home and the surrounding buildings, Aaron and his family ran the store. Aaron's son, William H., later moved the family business to the center of Orleans, where to this day it is run under the Snow name by a Snow uh, family member. Aaron died May 10th of 1892, and the original waterfront building, which became known to the locals as Aaron Follows, remained empty until it was purchased in 1900. During the first 30 years or so of the century, under at least four different owners, the building was run as a boarding house. The northeast and southeast wings were added to the structure shortly after World War II, and the building became the first a summer and then a year-round hotel. The doors of the Orleans Inn are open to Orleans residents and visitors. The Moss family has lovingly restored the inn to its beautiful splendor, and Ed and Lori Moss invite you to listen to the tales of the old home at the hotel. To steep yourself in the past and become part of the Orleans Inn's ongoing story. Lori's father, the late Clifford Gustafsson, uh, created the oil paintings on display throughout the inn during the family summer vacations on Lockett Harbor. O'Hagan's Irish pub was named after Ed's mother, Kathleen, who was born in County Down in Ireland. Ed Ma's last when he uh, is asked about his award-winning Cape Cod Inn, and it is, of course, haunted. The Orleans Inn reportedly has had experiences of the sun doors, deaths of inexplicable cold air, footsteps, uh, of course, and these are all things that other old haunted inns boast. But Moss also uh, has photographic evidence. Um, at Chatham High School, uh, they had a 25th year old, uh, excuse me, 25th uh, year reunion party. And Moss snapped a photo and later received a copy of it along with a bewildered call from partygoers. Moss explained that the presence of sliding through the frame was just Hannah, one of his three resident ghosts. In the 1920s, the inn building uh, actually housed a brothel. One of the women was murdered there, and Moss believes it is her ghost, which he named Hannah, 
that happily occupies the house. He first acquainted himself with Hannah. Um, that was, of course, very innocent enough when that happened. He said he often will sleep on the couch in case uh, guests need something at night. He awoke when he saw a naked woman come down the stairs, and he and the woman exchanged hellos, and then Moss fell back to sleep. He didn't think about the encounter again until he received a phone call from a passing motorist who warned Mouse to put curtains on the fifth floor Bel- uh, Belvedere window. He asked why, and the man answered that he could see a naked woman dancing around the room, and she didn't seem to be aware that she was visible from the street. There was no guest in the fifth floor room at the time. Point of order. He's sleeping on the couch, and a naked woman just comes down the stairs, and he's like, oh, hey. I don't know if he thought he was half asleep. Go back to sleep. I don't, didn't understand that one either, but <laughs> whatever. This was taken from an interview that he was in. Uh, if I was sleeping right there on the couch. I would have been like, man, and, let me and, your robe. And uh, a, a, a naked woman comes walking down the stairs. I would have been like, man, let me get your robe. I'm not going to just roll back. Roll back to sleep. That's definitely something that wakes you up. Anyway, moving on. Moving on. From that point of order. (laughs) (laughs) Since that encounter, Hannah has been a reoccurring presence at the end, um, and as we said, one of three. She's known to be a kindly presence who will light candles, open doors, and still tends to dance in the mood. The other spirits seem to be lingering, and one, of course, is an older lady believed to be the previous owner of the inn from the turn of the century. And there's a man named Fred who is believed to be a bartender who put himself in the cupola in the 1950s. But Hannah's the most active. Oh, well, yes, herself the most attention. Yes. <laughs> uh, like, ma'am, are you okay? Do you need help? Here, take my coat or something. Yeah. <laughs> Let me give you a blankie. <laughs> All right. Moving on to something uh, a little more modest, if you will. Yes. Not, so, not, that, not that we're prudish by any means. No. But it's a fun trying. No, how about that? We're going to go yeah, for a Yeah, we're going to do that. It's so. serious. Here, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this, this is a good one. Some suspect a serial killer, while others point a finger at the paranormal, but nobody has been able to fully explain the mysterious disappearances from Vermont's Bennington Triangle. Bennington Triangle. Everybody knows about the Bermuda Triangle. And we talked about the Bridgewater Triangle in Massachusetts. Yes. So Vermont has one too, by the way. Yep. Yeah. So. Followers of folklore and aficionados of the paranormal are certainly familiar with the Bermuda Triangle and perhaps even the southeastern Massachusetts Bridgewater Triangle, but one of these lesser-known cousins of these areas infamous for their strange disappearances holds more than its fair share of tantalizing mysteries, and this is that Bennington Triangle of Vermont. Dubbed as such by Vermont author Joseph A. Citro, the Bennington Triangle is a loosely defined area that encompasses the ghost town of Glastonbury, once a small logging community centered on the Eponymous Mountain, Eponymous Mountain in southwestern Vermont. Abandoned at the end of the 19th century after the logging boom died down, the greater Glastonbury area is now mostly untouched, pristine wilderness, 
and is considered remote even by Vermont standards. Starting with a string of missing persons over 70 years ago, the now abandoned town has long been the eerie setting of numerous unexplained disappearances, unsolved murders, and bizarre sightings that continue to this day. In 1945, a five-year span of disappearances began in the Bennington Triangle with the vanishing of Mitty Rivers. A 74-year-old local hunting guide, Rivers led a party of four hunters around the area of Hell Hollow in the southwest woods of Glastonbury before he was suddenly lost. After an unsuccessful initial search, many still believed that this knowledgeable woodsman would be able to survive and soon surface in town. However, this was not Case. Soon, more than 300 concerned locals and U.S. Army soldiers dispatched from Massachusetts's Fort Devens uh, and combed through the vast wilderness for eight days, turning up not a single shred of evidence as to the whereabouts of rivers. The following year saw arguably the most infamous missing persons case in the history of Vermont, the disappearance of Paula Weldon. Walden was an 18-year-old student at Bennington College who decided to take a hike, uh, uh, to hike a light of the long trail during Thanksgiving break when most of her peers had returned home for the holiday. Last seen on Sunday, December 1st, 1946, wearing easy-to-spot red and entering the long trail near Glastonbury Mountain, Walden never showed up for her Monday classes, spurring a massive search party of more than 1,000 people and a reward of $5,000. Despite the large turnout, numerous aircraft utilized, and a variety of assisting law enforcement departments, no clues to her fate were ever discovered. Many, including Walden's father, criticized the authorities' lack of sophisticated methods in handling the case, which actually served as the catalyst for the founding of the Virginia, um, Virginia Vermont, Vermont State Police seven months later. The case remains open to this day. Exactly three years today, to the day after the vanishing of Paula Weldon, the Bennington Triangle saw one of its more seemingly supernatural disappearances. That day, a 68-year-old man named James T. Tetford boarded a bus to Bennington after visiting relatives in St. Albans, Vermont. Numerous eyewitnesses, included, including the driver, later confirmed that Tedford had been sitting in his seat as late as the last stop before Bennington. Yet when the bus finally pulled into Bennington, Tedford was nowhere to be found. After he implausibly vanished into thin air whilst inside a moving vehicle, baffled passengers noted that Tedford's luggage and an open bus timetable remained on his seat. If the witnesses are correct, Tedford would have disappeared from his seat as the bus was traveling down Route 7 through the Bennington Triangle. Nearly a year later, in mid-October 1950, eight-year-old Paul Jepson went missing. He was last seen happily playing in the family pickup truck by his mother, who left to tend to pigs at the dump where she and her husband were caretakers. Then he vanished without a trace. In addition to the hundreds assembled for a search party, a New Hampshire sheriff brought in a bloodhound to sniff out the missing boy. The dog was able to pick up the scent, but abruptly lost the trail uh, at a nearby crossroads, suggesting a possible abduction by a motorist. As the cags dragged on without resolution, some suggested that Justin met in early demise at the hands of his parents and was dinner for the pig. 
But in keeping with the eerie feeling of Bennington Triangle, the boy's father told the Albany Times Union that it was perhaps the lure of the mountains that pulled in his missing son, as the boy had talked of nothing else for days prior to the disappearance. Only about two weeks later, 53-year-old Frieda Langer, an experienced hiker and survivalist familiar with the area, went missing on the Somerset area of the Long Trail bordering East Glastonbury. After hiking a brief half mile with her cousin, Eisner, Langer fell into a stream and set back to their camp to change her clothes, where her husband was resting with a hurt knee. But neither her husband nor her cousin ever saw her again. Helicopters from the Connecticut Coast Guard and U.S. Army in Massachusetts, as well as local aircraft from Citizens and the Vermont Aeronautics Commission, helped search for Langer. As many as 400 people, including the Massachusetts National, National Guard, meticulously searched the surrounding areas, yet found nothing. But soon they did find something, and this became the only known disappearance of the Bennington Triangle where a body has turned up. Six months after she went missing, Langer's corpse was found near the Somerset Reservoir. Curiously, an open area that had been searched extensively numerous times in the previous months. Yet even with a body and a case even with a body, the case saw little revolution. The body had decayed so badly that no cause of death could be determined, only fueling further speculation about what kind of disturbing end she might have met. The intriguing mysteries and unexplained events associated with the Bennington Triangle have caused many to speculate wildly about the possibility of nefarious and perhaps paranormal forces at work, a notion bolstered by alleged UFO and Bigfoot sightings in the region. Others believe that the burst of missing persons between 1945 and 1950 may have been the work of a serial killer, but the sheer lack of evidence to back this up, as well as the variety in the victims' ages and genders, defining that usual pattern of serial killers, likely rules out that theory as well. Others still contend that the disappeared method demise is the cause of an indigenous mountain cat, such as a lynx, bobcat, or catamount. However, bobcat and lynx are not known to be aggressive to humans, and the catamount has not been credibly sighted since before 1940 and has been since declared extinct. All in all, when trying to tie the disappearances together in hopes of discovering a solution to the mysteries, there is little to go on. The only known similarities between the most well-documented cases in the Bennington Triangle are the close proximity of the disappearances, the time of day when most were last seen, between 3 and 4 p.m., and the time of year when most were last seen, the final three months of the year. Final. And with little in the way of evidence, paranormal theories concerning the cases have taken hold. For those interested in the paranormal, such theories dovetail with others. More recent odd occur with other more recent odd occurrences in the Benton Triangle area. These occurrences include terrifying voices allegedly showing up on dead air radio, sightings of mysterious figures, unexplained navigation attacks, and planes that mysteriously crashed. Thus, it's no surprise that the Bennington Triangle attracts those with a penchant for the eerie to this day. That's our final story for tonight. That is. That, that is a lot of missing people in that relatively small area. It is. Yeah. It is. It's a little crazy when, it, when we were researching that one. Concerning. Yeah. Chilling. And as, as Chris 
said, the timing between all between 3 and 4 p.m., all the last three months of the year, I'm like screaming, there's a portal. There's a portal there. Everybody keeps falling into it. Yeah, they wound up somewhere else in the multiverse. They did. They took a little side trip. Yeah. I'm not going to go looking for the portal one. I got the multiverse on my mind. The Doctor Strange trailer, the, the latest one dropped during the Super Bowl last night. Uh, I, 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 I had to watch it on YouTube. We were flying in the airports during the, almost the entire game, so we didn't get to see too much. It's at the very end. Last goal scores. Yeah. It's going to be a pretty awesome movie. Anyways, I digress. Yes, you do. I do want to go ahead and point out a couple of things um, between now and our next show in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are going to be having our last um, tour in partnership with the John Marshall House, at least for this season. We're looking forward to doing more of them down the line, but this is the last one that we have lined up for, well, for the foreseeable future. Yeah. We'll see when we get when we can get future ones on the schedule, but this will be it for now. And that is this coming Saturday. We'll have tours at 7 and 8 o'clock, starting at the John Marshall House. And then tickets are limited because we are limited uh, by our space in the John Marshall House. Yep. Uh, also, the week after that, we have our last pub crawl for the winter, our pub pop, 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 if you will. Pub pop. And that is all sold out. Yeah, so we only have a few tickets left for that. So if you are interested, snatch those up right now. Yep. And join us for uh, a little a little drinky drink and some ghost stories as we move between uh, Penny Lane Pub and uh, the, the, the Triple, cross. Triple Crossing Brewing there down on Fushi uh, Street, the downtown location. Yes. Uh, next month, if you're coming to the Irish Hill uh, Church, Churchill Irish Festival. There we go. Uh, we will be out there. We will have a tent out there. So uh, definitely stop by and come see us. Uh, and other upcoming events, of course, Key West. Yep, yes. Come, on to Key West. Come for another warm trip with us. Clock ticking. It's hard to believe that. Um, we're down to less than 10 months. Yep. So that is going to be a lot of fun. We're looking forward to that. There are still some rooms left, so do please check that out. But they are going because they are more sales are coming first. So. Yep. So, yep, clock ticking on that. And, uh, gosh, might that be it for this week? I think that's it for right now. If we do have anything else to share, we'll, of course, just go ahead and plaster it out there on social media because why not? And uh, if you have any questions for us between now and the next two weeks, uh, drop us a line. Yep. We'd love to hear from you. doesn't have to be just during the show. We'd love to hear from you anytime. And uh, we also love to uh, see people, if you can come on out and join us on one of our tours. Yes. And since we touched about on uh, folklore, we're actually going to be doing cre- cryptoids next time. Cryptoids. We're finally getting we're the cryptoids. We're going to be doing now, some cryptoids. We've done some cryptoids before. I mean, we've done... You know, the technically werewolves and vampires, and vampires are, yep. Yeah. Um, but, but this is going to kind of be some of the uh, the other the more, more obscure stuff. A little more obscure, a little more bizarre stuff. So we got a whole episode on that. That's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, it was fun to research. Yep. So looking forward to that. But in the meantime, we are going to go ahead and get along for this evening, and probably collapse into bed because. We're still off on the business. I'm working on about four hours right now. Yeah. And that morning alarm to go to work is going to be very early. Yeah. Fully early. So we will catch you all for Cryptoids next time. Yep. But 
thanks for watching, everybody, and we will hope to uh, talk to you all again soon. Sounds good. Bye-bye. Have a good night. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.